All right. Everybody doing well today? My name's Steve. I'm one of the elders here at the church. I'm glad to be here this morning. We're glad that you're at Echo with us today. Um, You're at a good time of year because just at the beginning of the year, we started a new series called The Word, and we were talking about words that not just are going to impact we together as a church throughout 2017, but what we're asking you to do is to join us on a journey to pick a word that's going to define your 2017. And one of the reasons that ends up being a challenge for us is so many times we have thoughts and ideas and they become confused. And if you can just focus on one thing for a little while, if you were just to focus on one word throughout 2017, how powerful would that be? And just to do a intra, uh, what I want to say, an in-sermon advertisement for it is that we are doing this also in process through our small groups. We've split up our groups between ladies' groups and men's groups because the men are just incorrigible. They will never change I chief among them. But the culmination of that is that we have cards at which you're going to be able to determine what word is going to impact you. And here in a few weeks, we're going to do that just here collectively. You're going to have chances, small groups. If you're a lady, they're not meeting this week. They'll meet again next week. If you're a dude, we are meeting Wednesday night at Larry's house. Larry's going to, one of our elders, he's going to lift a hand. If you're a dude and you want to get involved, we haven't started yet. And it is always interesting and sometimes inappropriate because we are men. And that's how we are. So want to look toward that. But last week when David, our minister, uh, introduced that concept to us about the world, word, he, he, he's just like, hey, I've, I, I've got a t-shirt. And I don't know if you saw, like at the beginning, if you weren't here with us, he put on this big bright yellow t-shirt with the word of last week. What was the word from last week? New. That was great. That type of enthusiasm is why we show up week from week. So David, like, you know, he's just like, Steve, here's your t-shirt materials. You can make it. But unfortunately for us today, the word for today is countercultural. And if you know those little word things, it's difficult to fit that many things. I was like, I'm going to have to do a wraparound t-shirt. So really, and I did not have enough letters at the time to spell the word countercultural. So I was like, what am I to do today when I put on my bright yellow hunting shirt So I picked out a different word altogether. And my word for the day is striper. Now, some of you are like chuckle chuckle and some of you have no idea. And if you have no idea, it's probably good because there's two determining factors whether or not you understand striper. The first thing is age. Because if you're a child of the 80s, then you remember striper. Or if you're in the 90s and time just forgot you, maybe you lived in a rural area, maybe you know what striper is. The other one is that you would have to have gone, grown up in a Christian environment to where you were forced to listen to things as striper. What is striper? Striper was a Christian rock band and I felt it very apropos because their color scheme was always bumblebee in nature, yellow and black, which the best thing about this whole thing this morning is I've got now an awesome striper t-shirt that I can wear anywhere. Kelly and I got a big date night coming up here, and I'm going to be like, Striper! And I bet if I wore this out in the street, some people would be like, yeah! Why was Striper such a big thing? Because in the 1980s, there was a, and really starting in the 70s, there was a proliferation of big hair rock bands, and they had sometimes these satanic names, they would come up with Gaelic spelling to make it look even more satanic. 
Judas Priest, one of those bands, you know, because it has the name Judas and Priest in there. And it was like, it's close to becoming Satan worship. It's like, if you play the album backwards, then you'll become homicidal. It was this fear of what popular culture was doing. So what it was at the time, it said, wait, you know, we Christians, we like rock music, but we want good messages. So therefore, we'll start our own culture of Christian music and Christian rock and roll. And Striper were the first ones to get out there to be McAwesome. Like, they were the best. And they're, they're uh, platinum-selling. And think about that. Platinum-selling album, To Hell with the Devil, is still listed as one of the most influential Christian albums today. But even within this whole conversation, we have to ask ourselves, why did something like Striper exist? And that's because at the time, the people of faith felt that they needed to be countercultural. They believe that what we need to do is start a Jesus culture that maybe emulates some of the cool things about the world that we like, that it becomes those sanitized and helpful. And one of the reasons we wanted to deal with this word countercultural as a church is because it's something that maybe we more than other churches really deal with more so than others. Because a church in the middle of the city is filled with diversity. And you come up against people, maybe here more so than some suburban or rural areas, who are just vehemently opposed to Christianity and to faith. And what it becomes for us is that daily, if not hourly, opportunity for us to stand counter the popular culture that exists. But what does it mean to do that? Because those questions come to us completely, uh, continually and nonstop. Is it okay that I watch Westworld? Or should I be collecting precious moments figurines to line my bookshelves? It's that tension between we live that we want to talk about today for us as a people of God to see what the scriptures say about that. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. So if you have a blue Bible, or if you, again, have just fully immersed yourself in popular culture and don't carry a Bible anymore and use your, use your phone, we could judge you later for that you cultural absorbing people. We're going to be in the book of Daniel in the blue bibles in your pews. The page is 4 or excuse me 625. 625 if you have a blue bible or you can find it on your digital or if you actually brought a bible God bless you. Here's the thing about Daniel as we open up the bible just to understand there's two different parts to the bible. Most people are familiar with the New Testament because it begins with the life and story of Jesus and how the church got started. But before that, the Old Testament is the journey of creation to the establishment of a people of God to getting that people, the Israelites, into a permanent land. And when they're a land in their land, though, they want to be just like everybody around them. They want to fit within the broader global culture, and they demanded a king. They wanted a ruler. And reluctantly, God said, I'll give you a king, but it's not going to turn out well. So recognize that, and eventually it doesn't turn out well to the extent that God has to punish them for this act. And that sets the stage from where we at in the book of Daniel. So remember, this happens before the time of Jesus, but after the times of the kings, if you're familiar with King David, this is at a time where the kingdom has fallen apart. And the one last thing for this morning, before we get started, and she's here with me, my sister and her family are here this morning. Uh, she's got the gaggle of kids, some are in here, some are in the back and such. She and her husband minister with the church. He's a, a preaching minister. Who he's preaching right now in Franklin, Indiana, just out of Indianapolis. But uh, it, um, I want to introduce her to her in full transparency, because if you want to find out how absolutely horrible I am, 
she has every story imaginable. But uh, the thing that I appreciate is that they're here this morning, my nieces and nephews. And here's the thing, is that um, we've been blessed to have a family who loves the Lord. And um, it's been good. But then she knows about all the evil music I listen to growing up. So Becky, this is what, we're, what we do every week, is we go through the scriptures and we have somebody read out loud. So if you can, with that microphone, we'll get you taken care of. Read verses 1 through 3 of Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and of the nobility. Okay, so what we're looking at is the downhill slide of the people of God. This is actually the lowest point because what God is now going to do is to punish his people for not being obedient to him. Their lack of obedience is that they worshipped other gods. They participated in child sacrifice. They had become just like the culture surrounding them. And God was telling them for decades, I will punish you. I will punish you. And what we have here at the beginning of Daniel is the punishment. That begins with a momentous date within Jewish history, the fall of Jerusalem, which occurs, and we we know the date, it was 586 BC before Jesus was born, 586 years, and actually the Jews still remember this day, in in Hebrew it's called Tishba'av, and Jews focus in on this day as it being the absolute worst day in their history, because at this point God allowed an external army, the Babylonians, to come in and besiege Jerusalem, and they destroyed destroy everything in sight. It's interesting, so just to to try to put that within your world history thought, this is before Alexander the Great, this is before Greece, but uh, probably about 200 years before that. And at this point, global kingdoms in the world were few and far between. There really had not risen one up um, since Egypt in about, you know, the, the 12th century before Jesus was born. So the Babylonians come on the scene. They start to conquer um, parts of Asia and Europe. And what's interesting about this is that as prolific as the Babylonians were, and if you can remember back to your history, they had like the hanging gardens of Babylon. They were fascinating within their architecture, but they reigned for such a short time. Only 70 years is the extent of the whole kingdom. And one of the reasons that we know so much about the Babylonians is because of their conquest of Jerusalem. They came in and God allowed them to be the hand of judgment to his people. Because they looked just like those people around them. They conquered them. They killed many of them. And within this, one of the things that we see here in verse 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, and maybe you've heard of him. He's got like the longest biblical name. But we know also through archaeological records, you know, because some people are like, eh, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of made up names and stories and places and times. No, we know Nebuchadnezzar lived. We know that he conquested. And we know that this practice that we're talking about here in Daniel chapter one, verse three is something that was very popular. Not only did he kill inhabitants of Jerusalem, but he took some of the best and the brightest back to Babylon with them. He took them from their home hundreds of miles to Babylon 
to try to change who they are. What does that look like? Becky, I'm going to ask that you keep reading here verses 4 through 6 in Daniel chapter 1 so we can see what it looks like when Nebuchadnezzar gets these young people and drags them back to Babylon. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand. Boy, that sounds so much like me, doesn't it? Do you remember this when we were growing up? I'm reading the scripture. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. You can keep going. Qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, Can you read verse 7 too? I'm sorry about that. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name of Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he picks the best and the brightest. And yes, it was a little sexist here. They picked the young men because they were the ones who at that time would be ruling society. So he took some of the best and brightest Jews from Jerusalem and took them to Babylon. And it wasn't just for a regular field trip purpose, but it was in order to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture and society. Why would they do that? Because the Babylonians were trying to project not just to have an empire that reigned for a generation, but multiple generations. So when you're looking to try to transform a society, you don't do it with the older people. You don't go to the upper stratum of the age check box list, but you go to the young people. Because if you can win the hearts and the minds of the young people, then you're going to ensure the future generations will have your culture. And this is not something that we just see in the Bible. This is something that we see historically. Alexander the Great, the reason that Hellenism was so popular hundreds of years later is because he followed this game plan. So that even generations after Alexander was dead, even when Jesus lives 300 years later, the influence of Greco, of the Greek society in that time was unparalleled. Greek culture was as prevalent in the time of Jesus as was Jewish culture. Now, for some of you who want maybe a little, a better example of this, I take you to the sound of music. How many of you are sound of music fans? Anyone? All right. We'll have a a closeted representation of this right here. It might just be from the compelling performance of Julie Andrews. But one of the songs that is still very memorable from the sound of music is that of the young couple who are starry-eyed in love. She's 16, going on 17. Liesel. Did I pronounce that correctly? Okay, I always mess that up. But then my favorite is her, 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 her beau. And his name is Rolf. Which is just such a beautiful name. It's like, I love you, Rolf. And then it's followed by a hurling sound. But this is the thing. If you remember, the, the thing that's so perplexing in the sound of music is that Rolf and Lisa are so in love at the beginning. It's wonderful. And then the Nazis come. And by the way, in world history, whenever the Nazis come, things go downhill real quick. Even the sound of music. And what happened was, Rolf changed. And remember what happens at the end of it? Rolf is in his, you know, he's wearing a swastika on his arm. And he's part of this regime of Austrian young people who are actually ratting out the Von Trapp family. Well, he kind of does, and then it gets awkward, and he blows a whistle late. It was really weird. But the point behind it is, is that what happened to Rolf 
is what very same thing Nebuchadnezzar is doing in Daniel chapter 1. It's getting the best and the brightest young people and indoctrinating them into culture. The Nazis did this, Alexander the Great did this. Nebuchadnezzar here did this because if they could get them following culture, their culture, it would exist on. The last thing about this is is very interesting. And you might have missed this in verses 5, 6, and 7 here. But they actually get new names. They get Babylonian names. Because Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, these names, and, and Daniel, all these names have their roots within Hebrew worship God things. If you, you know, I, I'll look at just the names right here. But by the way, where it goes, uh, Daniel, you know, see the I-E-L. If you know anything about the names of God, one of the names of God is Elohim, right? So that L stands for that. Um, the ayah is at the end of this, like Azariah and Hananiah, that is the ah, which actually sounds like Yah, and in their name was the word Yahweh, which was another name for God. So when their parents were like, we're going to name you young men, we're going to give you good Jewish names that remind you who God is. And one of the things the Babylonians say is that we're going to give you new names, but these are going to be good Babylonian names. So the names Belteshazzar, which we don't hear that a lot about Daniel, but that was his given name. And he's like, dude, my name was so short and concise and you give me a huge name, it's the worst. But it means Bel, which if you know anything about the Old Testament, there's the gods were called the Baals, Baal, which means master. It means Baal, protect his life. And then we know those three dudes who later appear in the story. Maybe you've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're always together in their things. Maybe if you have children or are getting there in VeggieTales land, it's Rack, Shack, and Benny, right? Somebody tracking with me? We did Striper. We can do VeggieTales. It's all the same. But the reality is what they do is in order to get them at their core, what's the most distinctive thing about you really is it's your name. It's who you are. It's your identity that was passed down from generation to generation. And this, this is what the Babylonians tried to do. They wanted to completely transform these good Jewish boys and make them good Babylonian pagans. Becky, do me a favor and go ahead and read the next verses. And this is a little longer, but bear with me. Verses 8 to 14 in Daniel chapter 1. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for ten days. One of the things that people say about the Bible is that it specializes in the grandiose, right? Like there's a worldwide flood, so this guy has to build a huge, massive boat to save all the animals, right? The Israelites get to this Red Sea, and it's like, you know, we have to part that so they can crawl or so they can walk across to the promised land, right? There's all these different things that are grandiose. It's very interesting that the test that comes before these four young men is not something huge like them bowing down in worship. It comes down to the first thing is food, what they eat. 
Now, I grew up in more of a conservative church family, and when we would get to this story, what our church would teach is that, you see how they were eating meat and wine, and they said, no, we can't do this, is that the whole focus of coming down to this was on the wine. It's like, we do not want any drunkards, never drink, and you'll be fine. And as much as maybe there's a message in there, it's not necessarily a biblical message, because we know over and over throughout the scriptures, there's no huge abstinence on wine, and the only people who abstain from it took an oath to do so, meaning that it's actually outside the norm. Now, we should say this parenthetically, because we're not a church that comes down on alcohol, but this is, this is something I think it is good, by the way. Even though it might be permissible, if you are getting sloshed all the time, that is in the Bible. If you're using alcohol as a release, then you need to watch yourself. Because one of the reasons that we're supposed to keep our faculties among ourselves, why we're not supposed to get drunk, is because it is making an idol out of that. It is me saying, you know what, to get by in this world, I need a bunch of drank, and I'm going to just wake up in a gutter somewhere, and then I'll come to grips there. That means you're not focusing on what God has to do. So this is parenthetically, I'm trying to give you the both angles of this. It's not about, you know, eating red meat and drinking alcohol. Because one of the things within the society, what would happen is that those types of food particularly would be sacrificed to gods before being served before the people. So they would take a cow and it wasn't just like, you know, you go to Kroger or if you're from Cincinnati Kroger's and, you know, you would just buy whatever cut of meat they have. No, they would take the cow or whatever happened and they would say, we are killing this animal in the name of Baal so that when you eat it, you will get the power that Baal put within the animal. And sometimes they would do the same thing as wine. They would have wine ceremonies because, it, you know, it, it was alcohol. It had such a mysterious aspect to it. They would worship these foods and then think that by somehow ingesting them, they were worshiping the gods. There's another thing, by the way, because some of this food might have been unclean. They could have been eating pig. And at this point, Jews were not permitted to do so. So within those brackets, those parameters, they had to figure out how they were going to exist and live their lives. Were they going to indulge in food that was against their belief or would it just be part of, hey, this is who we are now? And Daniel and his friends say, do me a favor, give me a test. I know what foods aren't sacrificed to the pagan gods, the water and vegetables. Give that to us and see how we do. Notice that the official is like, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't be doing this. Why is he so passionate about them not doing this? Because he understands, listen, there is, you know, the gods have blessed this wine and this food. And therefore, if you eat them, that's how you're going to grow in strength and knowledge. And he's like, no, 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 trust me on this. It will be okay. Just give us a 10-day test. And the guy's like, 10 days? There's not much behind that. Let me see what happens as a result of that. In verse 15 here, we read the outcome outcome of what happens. At the end of those 10 days, the young people looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate royal food. Did you catch that? After 10 days. I think this is one of the most understated miracles in all of scripture. A few years ago, maybe it's even longer now, it might even be a decade ago, a guy named Morgan Spurlock, who does documentaries, did a documentary called Supersize Me. Did anybody actually watch this? His challenge was, he said, I'm going to eat McDonald's at every meal for 30 days, for an entire month. I will eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if I get to the counter and they said, would you like to supersize it? He says, I would. And he ate all of this food, and then he would go to the doctor periodically. And the point that the the doctor would continue to say, you're going to die if you do not stop doing this. Which actually presented this whole 
counter argument to that because this guy's like, I'm going to do the same thing. And he did and his cholesterol went down. And it's just about weaving the storytelling. So what was interesting is that Morgan Spurlock did, he gained lots of weight. It was a horrible thing. This other guy did it. He lost weight. His cholesterol got better. I don't know how all this works within your paradigm, but this is it. That was 30 days. And think about it. If you did anything for 30 days, how dramatic would it be? Maybe some of you are starting your new year resolution by trying to work out all the time, right? This is the most frustrating time in that period because we're two weeks into 2017 and it feels like an eternity, right? You're like, I've been waking up at 5.30 doing planks every day and I see nothing and I'm ticked. I'm just going to eat some donuts down in the lobby and that'll take care of everything. But here's the thing, is that we usually don't see results after 14 days, after 21 days, even after 30 days. But after 10 days, this happens. After 10 days, it's like, holy moly, the difference is huge. I'm not going to say that that had to do with CrossFit or any other dietary supplements. I think that this is a miracle of God because they were faithful. God said, I am going to show you what I mean to you, even when you're hundreds of miles away from home, because your morality doesn't change when you leave your neighborhood. You need to be who you are. And I think this is an important message for you and I to recognize about this. I love that the book of Daniel, which has some amazing things, starts off with food and just, will I eat what God wanted me to eat? Again, that is not directly applicable to you and I today, but this aspect is, if you are faithful in the little things about the kingdom, If you are striving for obedience to God in the small things, then big things come very easy. When you read people, and I've read books about habit shifting, that's why they have this 21-day, 30-day window, because they're like, if you can do the little things for a month, then it will become habitual and it will change who you are. I think it's the same thing for us. If we can just do the little things, if, if we can just honor and submit to God in the small things, I think we see that overall... It's a lot easier. Um, I don't even know where that came from. Becky, verses 17 to 20, please. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So this is what I love. They're faithful to the little things, and God said, by the way, because you're doing this, I'm going to hook you up with powers that you can't even understand. He allowed them to have supernatural powers, the opportunity to be able to understand and interpret dreams, which is not normal. At the same time, they became so proficient and prolific within paganism of Babylon that they were able to teach the Babylonians themselves and be like, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. You don't understand what Baal is really trying to do here. And they're like, oh, that's brilliant. And because they had that knowledge and increased their position in Babylon and within the kingdom. See, everybody talks about, yes, there was an aspect that God was punishing the Israelites by exiling the Babylon because of what they did. But at the same time, our God is a God of redemption. And he took this bad thing and allowed his will to be accomplished with these young men who would never have ended up in Babylon for any other reason. They never would have gone there. And yet God moved them from 
far away from their home. They were faithful in little things and they end up impacting the society. You know how we see this? And if you have a blue Bible, it's easy to do this. But if you have your thing, you flip to chapter two because after this thing, Daniel gets a run in where the king is just like he has this dream. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and nobody knows it. And the, the, the enchanters and magicians in the kingdom are like, hey king, you tell us the dream and we'll interpret for you. He's like, no, 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 no. I've been there before. You're cheating. You tell me the dream and tell me what it means or I'll kill all of you. <laughs> That's a pretty good test. And they're like, nobody can do this. Maybe Daniel can. And sure enough, Daniel comes and he interprets the dream for him and he's able to do it, not through the occult, but through the power of God. Chapter three then, because there's a dream, when you look into this, there's this dream of this statue that's made up of many different pieces. It's like, he tells the king, you had this dream of this big statue and this rock comes out of the hill and knocks it all over. And by the way, I could do weeks in chapter two because in chapter two, it predicts the coming of Jesus. Jesus is this rock that comes out of a mountain and trashes this statue and Nebuchadnezzar hears this. And he goes, that sucks because I'm in that statue. So he goes, I'll get this. I'll make a big gold statue. It's not gonna be made of different things. It's gonna be one gold statue and everybody's gonna have to bow down and worship to it. And that's where we get Rakshak and Betty, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Benego. They're like, we're not gonna bow down. Look, we were faithful with the food thing. God's gonna protect us. In the end, he throws them into a fiery furnace. He's like, they should be burning alive. The people who threw them in are dying. And then ultimately, the king's like, how are they still alive? And who's that other guy that's really bright in there? It was an angel that came to save them. Transforming the culture. Chapter four is one of my favorite books in the book of Daniel because if you look at the beginning of chapter four, it begins King Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples and nations and men of every language in all the world, may you prosper greatly. This is a letter. Chapter four is a letter, not to King Nebuchadnezzar, but from King Nebuchadnezzar. A pagan wrote a chapter in your Bible. Do you realize that? You're like, all scripture is God inspired. It is, but understand this a pagan wrote this chapter. Because he talked about how Daniel gave him a prophecy and he's just like, I'll be okay because my God's great. He gets, his life goes to crap. And then ultimately he comes redeemed at the end of the story. He's just like, hey, the God of Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah, the God is true. Even by the time he ends up in the lion's den in chapter six, Daniel is faithful the whole time. And through these little things, through different kings and rulers and everything, God took the faithful sacrifice of food by four young men. When I say young, they're 12, 13, 14. They don't have this well-defined faith. They've not even been long enough, alive long enough to have it. They stand firm in a tough spot and it transforms that kingdom and it transforms the future of the people of God. How do we take that though, right? Because some of you are like, you know what, Steve, my biggest problem, you know, when I'm thinking about what to eat is if I'm going to have a salad or a hamburger, right? Like, it's not really applicable on a big spiritual level. What does this mean to us? What does their choice in being counterculture mean to you and I? And I would say this, because I talk about culture a lot. And I've actually, in seminary when I teach, I've taught culture for a long time. But there's usually two ways that people tend to uh, approach culture. And I always talk about it within the tightrope metaphor. Tight roping, you know, there's slack lining now, but tight roping has really gone out. So if it helps you to think of this as a slack line, it's fine. It's just not as deadly, I guess. But what we have is two extremes of how we react to popular culture, isn't it? Striper is the isolationist move. What the isolationist moves means is like we need to be as separate from the world as possible. So we need to create things that exist independently of it so that we can be safe, right? 
We all want safety. We want to be good Christian boys and girls. And the whole point is like, okay, if I can get away from the world, then that's when I'm the best. There was these people hundreds of years after Jesus lived. They are known as the early church fathers. They were also known as ascetics. When they were trying to figure out how do we sin less, they came up with a solution. They said, we should move out in the desert and not be around any people ever. Because what I find is people cause me to sin. So you have writings, we have them today, of people who live separately from the culture the whole time. And as much as it might be profound at a spiritual level, it's not practical. Because that's not what we are called to do. Friends, you're called to live as people of God with other people. And, this is important for us, you're called to live with people who are not all Christian. I think that's something that happens within churches. One of the reasons I'm glad that we're always a little loose by the way that we do things at Echo is we don't want to over-program so that you're doing everything only with church people. If you don't have good non-Christian friends in your life, then you're doing it wrong because we're called to live in that because it's not easy, right? It's like, hey, we're with our Christian friends. We can pray and, and it's no big deal. But when we invite over people to our house and have a meal that are not, you know, not Christian folk, and it's like, hey, we pray before our meal, you know, you care? Nobody ever says, yes, I do care. We will not pray. They're all like, I just want to eat, pray. But it brings conversations to the forefront. Isolation is not the key. At the same time, what I put as accommodation, sometimes it's really just immersion, is another aspect of it. It's not like we should be able to live in the world and there should be no distinguishable difference between us and what the world is. That there are things in this world that are great but have been corrupted. But then there are things in this world that are just devious that we should have no part in. And that is something that sometimes Christians do. They're like, hey, we're all forgiven by Jesus, therefore it's all good in the hood. I can live, drink and chew and go with girls who do and not worry about the ramifications of that. That's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is really come in the middle. Can I tell you what the toughest part when I tell people about this? This is the problem. I can't tell you exactly which way you need to lean. Does that make sense? Because that's the object or the the goal of traversing a tightrope is to make your balance. If you're leaning one way, you need to come back the other way. Friends, it's navigating gray. People don't come to church to hear about gray. Most people want fundamentalists like, I will tell you exactly what to believe because then I take the thinking out of it for you. You can't do that and do it well. If we're going to be truly countercultural, we have to figure out how to navigate the gray. Let me go one more because I think this is really what it means for us as Jesus followers to be countercultural. And this leaves us flailing, I guess, off of the tightrope. But there are two aspects of the nature of our God that exists in the world that we recognize. And one is one of grace. And that's the part that gets a lot of advertising today, right? It's all about grace. It's all about God saving us. But there's an aspect that people don't want to talk about of God's nature. And it's the other side of that, and that's justice. And it's funny, we like to talk about justice, provided that it's talking about somebody else, that it's not talking about me, right? I want justice in another situation, but when it comes to me, I want grace. And I think that's the toughest thing that happens when we people of God live in the world. I think that's the challenge. Where do you lean into, justice or grace? I'll tell you, for me, I've been in churches so long that I like to negate justice altogether and I like to live in grace. For me, I like to not think of the idea that God has laws and provisions that he wants us to follow. But you recognize, friends, that we can't understand God's grace 
When we talk about Jesus saving me, I can't really grasp what that is without justice. It's something that's true. And I will tell you this, for you and me to live counterculturally in the city and in our society today, that's going to be the toughest part that we deal with. But that's what we want to be on journey this year as a church. What does it look like for us as a church, individually, to live on both ends of that spectrum? Not to accommodate ourselves in the world, be immersed in it so that the world becomes an idol to us, Not that we switch to the other side and we're so isolated from the world that our personal piety becomes our idol. But how do we live life as Jesus would? You know, the thing that we read at the beginning of this in the prayer of Jesus from John chapter 17, the first thing in service that we read was Jesus saying, listen, you've given your people the word. Just let them dwell, let that dwell in them. Because they're like me. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. That's what Jesus said. That's what you and I need to do. What's it mean to be in the world, not of the world? For some of you, that means you need to be less pious. For some of you, that means you need to go and be like, I don't know, you know, don't go on Tinder to do this, but find your non-Christian friends, you know? I, I, I might not recommend that you just go to bars or whatever. Just do what's necessary for you to get some of those people in your life. For some of you, it's the opposite of that. Some of you need to delve into, you know, maybe some of you, you need to get closer to Christ. You can't do that on your own. You need to be in like a small group or the different aspects that's happening there because you need to be merged, immersed in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Friends, let's go out and live grace and justice. Let's go out and be countercultural. Let's, let's live the truth for him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this is one of the reasons that I love your scriptures because it's easy to see either side of the tightrope and we can pull up scriptures, but at the same time, there are other things that talk about it. And this concept of gray father is problematic to us because there is lots of black and white in your scripture, but some of the day-to-day decisions that plague us in this room come down to navigating the gray. And the only way we can do that is to center ourselves in you. Thank you for Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel who did that, who centered themselves in you. Help us this week to go out to do the same. We thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Help us to go out and live life as you would want us to do. In Christ's name, amen.